Hello, everyone. I'm Saika, and welcome to our first proper talk with a mental health professional on the South Asian mind. This is the first time I'm working with podcasts, so please bear with me. If it's a bit shit and if it's not engaging enough for you, I promise I'll get there eventually with time. So this first episode, I'll be talking to Pratiba. She's a called representing mental health professional here in Melbourne. In her own words, she's a trained clinical family therapist and a counselor who is specialized in the treatment of emotional trauma and PTSD symptoms for children, youth, and adults. So today we've taken on quite a few topics, starting with what culturally competent therapy looks like for her, just so you understand some of her biases and get some tips on how to gauge whether your therapist would be a good match for you or not before you commit to them and pay them a lot of money. <laughs> we then talk about the feeling of anger you feel for your parents when you don't particularly see eye to eye with them and break down that guilt that comes with that anger. So I'll stop talking now and get straight to it as it is quite an amazing conversation, even if I do say so myself. <laughs> Hi Pratiba, thank you so much for being on the first episode of the South Asian Mind. I am nervous and excited for this and I feel like you are as well by the looks of it. <laughs> So I guess I'll start off by telling you to give a small introduction of yourself. Well, hi. I'll just formally for the podcast say, hi, Saika. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity to, really, thank you for the opportunity to be here with me. And I think part of me when I was thinking of introducing what I think what I'd like to say is we're connected now by the hip because we had this first experience and no one can take that from me saying I was the first one who did the podcast with Saika when you become famous. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Pratiba and I was raised in southern India um, and uh, I was uh, born and raised and completed my education and lived there for the first 21 years. And I left uh, India, like many other Indian girls at that time, as well as boys, um, to leave home to find better education. And the popular thing at that time was find an education in the States. That was a, a very in thing at that time. And so I joined the in thing and went to the States and um, pretty much also part of the desire as a as a 21 year old was to leave home find myself so the excitement was to go and find freedom in uh, exploring and having control of my daily life in a way that perhaps in India at that time was not and um, and so I, I fell in love pretty much with the uh, living working and um um, and traveling a lot as a single woman in many different countries and towns and states. So in a way, I pretty much who I am now, I would say, I relate myself, if someone is to say who you are, I say, I'll say I'm a global citizen because I've lived in many places. Um, yeah. And um, so fast forward uh, 20 plus years, um, I was thinking, oh, I do come in the middle age category now. So here I am meeting you today <laughs> as, uh, as, a as a trained clinical family therapist and a counsellor um, and uh, specialised in uh, treatment of emotional trauma and PTSD symptoms uh, for children, youth and adults. And I'm very passionate to empower the South Asian and Indigenous communities in any part of the world they live. So, um, yeah, that's who I am and how I'm saying hello to you today and to your audiences. Thanks so much for the introduction. Um, but before we go into the particular story that really piqued my interest for this episode, I guess I wanted to ask you what your, I guess, what does culturally competent therapy look like for you? You know, before I answer culturally competent, I think it's linked a little bit to also our paths crossing and why it crossed mm -hmm. because I was, in, you know, finding myself as a therapist Really, if I, you know, I did the gap between uh, the, you know, health sector and the community. And for me, it was uh, clear where, how do I address this gap in a meaningful manner? So 
and I'm not in social media. So it's fantastic that you're in social media and there's a bridge there that connects us. Um, So for me, so that kind of gives the, uh, you know, uh, an entry point to the audiences and to you. I came in here from an experience that culturally competent therapy is something that is uh, a gap, but it's also a need. Um, and, uh, and I'm talking about it from definitely from my biases and my experiences, um, both as, uh, you know, as a woman, uh, as a migrant, but also as a woman and a health professional, Cal representing mental health professional in a sector that is still quite dominated with a different culture. So I think one of the challenges in uh, in the mental health sector I'll just own is that whether you're a psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, counselor, the curriculum and the training, whether you do it here or India or anywhere, it's actually steeped in Western model and beliefs of health and wellness. So it's coming mm-hmm. from um, a standardized understanding of normal behaviors from an American middle-class family, Anglo-Saxon. So the diagnostic tools and everything is measured against a normative that is fundamentally inherently uh, a, 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 rep- a representation of a certain monoculture. So mm-hmm. when you talk about cultural competence, um, where we are, so no one graduates, including myself, when I come out of counseling, I'm not culturally competent because the <laughs> very nature of the education system is biased. So that will give you audiences like, you know, you know, somebody can't claim they are culturally competent based on receiving a master's degree or something. There's a flag. So don't trust that. <laughs> Um, uh, so what makes culturally competent is the experiences. And I would say there's two things that drive the competence. So it could be that. And, uh, you know, in um, a Western, uh, you know, an Anglo-Saxon uh, psych or social worker or um, so a counselor works in a sector which is dominantly by cross-culture. So refugees, asylum. So they are driven by a need to understand culture and want to be competent in the work they do. So they start using resources or the system supports them with trying to give some in-house based training and understanding but it's the experience of the clients that gives them or it could be the other way people like myself who are born and raised and uh, been able to travel or who have uh, cross-cultural self uh, personal experiences and they themselves have this inquiry process internally to know hey, I, do, I know in my community doesn't fit. So they research and find on their own. So really cultural competence for, them, for that kind of demographic of mental health therapy would be pretty much experience. How many years of experience have you got? Because someone who still graduated, even though if I, when I st- first graduated, that was nearly 15 plus years ago, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say I was culturally competent because while I knew it, I didn't have the knowledge and the skills, again, because the sector is not set up. So when I was, if I were to say to you and to the audience, what is culturally competent therapy? I would say why I can say with certain confidence, not to the long, is that I had to embrace the limitation of the system that there's an actual gap in the skills and knowledge. So I didn't claim to be culturally competent for a while. I'll say, yes, there are biases, but I'm willing to work. So that's the Mm -hmm. first acknowledgement I did as a therapist to my clients. The second thing I had to do also persevere, persevere with other mentors and supervisors who are actually interested in relational work. So that again required a lot of, uh, because there's a lot of uh, the fundamental model of mental health is individual. Whereas I knew from lived experiences and through the work, most women don't want to feel the relief in their relationship, not individual. They are mm-hmm. okay to suffer, but they want to find the you know some acknowledgement within the relationship and uh, they carry. So it's uh, so again finding mentors and how do you work with that relationship while still keeping the well-being of the individual? That requires a lot of uh, understanding. Again, supports for me. To the service I offer and uh, also time over time now it's again finding my own way now I feel a little bit confident say yes I have a framework now to share to combine western neuroscience with eastern families and the confidence really comes from the people I have served every time I've seen the change in the families and the women it mm-hmm. gives me confidence this pathway I'm doing of combining this work is really working so that's so to me when you're looking for cultural competence I would say interview 
I would yeah. say research your own, ask questions about how, you know, what is cross-culture? How can you say, what informs you? Um, is it your own experience? What kind of training you have done? Inquire. You're, you're as much putting trust in someone as well as the others. And also ask the uh, therapist, what would be your beliefs? What would be your beliefs, certain things that are very important for you? So I think um, that's what I would say is cultural competent um, talk. Uh, and also for the listeners to also feel empowered to in, enter the spaces, knowing what to also find out. Yeah. Thank, thanks for so much for that, because one of the questions, or I guess the struggles that a lot of people go through, and me personally, is I've tried several therapists and psychologists, but it's so hard for, because as you said, most of them are learning this, I guess, Western you know, structure of therapy and psychology. It's so hard to find someone you connect with as as a South Asian and yeah. having someone who understands all these nuances that come from the background, which is, I guess, hopefully some of the tips you gave that will help people ask the therapist some right questions before they commit to them. So thank you so much for that. Um, and then another interesting thing and a good segue from what you said is that you said a lot of people really try and preserve their relationships with other people rather than, you know, think inwards and think about their own mental well-being and mental health. So that's actually one of the components of what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to start off with a a common story that I've heard from many South Asian women when I put out this this post. So there's one little story I'll read out to you and we can take it from there. So it says, as I've gotten older, I start to realize that a lot of my parents' strictness really was in response to raising children in a completely foreign culture. While part of me can be forgiving as to how hard this would have been, there have been some devastating consequences in my mental health as I do not get the independence or the emotional support I need from them. Feeling anger towards this while also being able to understand while also being understanding has been an incredibly difficult emotion to deal with. How does one deal with the guilt of feeling this anger towards their parents? Okay, wow. (laughs) There's so much to unpack here, Saika. Um, So let's, can you re, uh, you know, uh, I think the first uh, experience just caught my attention first. So you're saying that you were, uh, this particular client has been, uh, Mm a woman, has been raised in a foreign culture? So yeah, she, she has been raised in a foreign culture, in a Western country. But her parents uh, are from South Asia, and I guess they still believe in some of the traditional cultural values, and which kind of portrays Mm -hmm. as strictness to someone who hasn't grown up in that South Asian society. Absolutely. Okay, so here itself, the complexity, even in that, without not knowing the, you know, the uh, the reason for the journey to come into a foreign culture, without knowing the, uh, you know, the choices and the uh, age of the person who came here, because it's very different experience mm-hmm. when you're a child compared to a teenager, compared to, uh, say, a 21-year-old, mm-hmm. because again, um, I look at experiences in a social political lens, particularly for me as a South Asian. In the, that's what's you you know unique in that in the South Asian space, but to, and also another layer for women. Mm-hmm. Um, so what comes out for me in that first, uh, even in that as a, a, a as a well being uh, person is oh wow! First of all, the the journey of coming to a country. Mm-hmm. with an innocence most often that happens they come to survive or to escape poverty to escape yep. uh, you know certain things that's what families do and yep. they come with no exposure so they no exposure to understand uh you know that the growing up the collective social system is very different to the system mm-hmm. they're familiar education uh, so they completely parents come with a naivety and innocence and also thinking in a collective way 
I'll meet other people from my community and they will help me. Mm -hmm. So again, so again, so then what happens then for children who are raised in a family, they have to live, grow up in a dual world alone. So they have to grow up in a dual world where they enter the household, where the parents are clueless. And again, for real valid reasons of social context and community context, um, that the foreign culture is ignorant because that's the other thing. The foreign culture, are they equipped to uh, support something? Or again, there's, there is marginalization due to race, language and uh, color that has made this family separate and not assimilate into yeah. the foreign culture positively. So mm-hmm. there is a gap that comes automatically of fear in parents because of the systemic op- you know, exposure to marginalization. Consequently, then the child grows up facing alone, learning all the new foreign culture rules, children's rights and everything, which never existed, say, when I grew up. When I grew up with <laughs> yes. children's rights, I never knew. My right was to have some food. It's like, can I have pani puri or pavati? That's your right. But more than that, there's no right. So this whole notion. And so in a foreign culture, when you're growing up with asking for learning at school, what your rights are, what you can speak, and also having friends who are probably also, you start to compare. That's a human yeah. need to compare. But then you are growing up as a child, sitting with the confusion, because again, the education system is not prepared to support from uh, diverse backgrounds, this difference. The education system also lets uh, family and parents down because they don't understand and communicate well. So Mm -hmm. when you're saying this experience, I'm just putting the context of growing up, of how much loneliness that the child experiences and also the lonely, I mean, the relational distance that the parents ha- continue to have with the child and wondering, I've sacrificed so much and why, why is my child not feeling the love? To-? So there's the why exists within a clear social construct of, or, you know, to me about racism, marginalization, language and uh you know uh, a lot of those factors so if i were to listen to this woman's experience mm-hmm. my first thing was to say it sounds like do you relate to any of these experiences to you and does any of this make sense for you than what you experienced so again i'm not assuming but i will own and present it in a way which uh-huh. parts of it has been more affected by so in a yeah. way, I'm automatically looking at the problem, not in an individual way, but something that has been held and having to forced on this child for no fault by the parents, by the system, by everyone engaged with the child. Yeah. It hasn't been fair. So to me, when I look at the problem, that is where the tension is. And so there is a source of anger then that comes justified within a systemic lens. So yes, there's a certain sense of grievance that comes with parents, but there could be also other parts of being let down by a friend or let down by a teacher or let down by a system that could have maybe held this person if they have been growing up again, I'm assuming in a foreign culture, Mm -hmm. to assimilate their differences in a meaningful manner. And often that's the hidden bias in mental health that I'm passionate about is because they separate. If I were to see a child like that in a school setting, you just work with a child, but I don't work with a child in the cultural context. So what happens is the parents get fearful I won't send a child rather than, or the child is it. So the gap again comes in how we understand this genuine source of frustration, this genuine source of being, you know, restricted. It could be that the restriction could happen because of fear. We're assuming because fear, if something happens to my child, if I didn't know language, didn't know, have supports, how will I protect my child? So it could, so the sources of strictness often gets overlaid and gets misunderstood as culture also by school system. I've worked with schools. They automatically judge, oh, it's a strict family. It may not be. It could be genuine fear and racism. So it's good to me. That's why when someone says, comes to me with that source of pain, I help understand the, the you know, varied versions and experiences mm-hmm. in different contexts. Yeah. So it's possible it's with parents, but it could be with other places too. Yeah, no, I think that is 
I guess where the guilt comes from. I can't speak for the person who put up this story, but for me, for instance, um, I didn't grow up in Australia. I came here after, you know, after high school for university, but I grew up in Bangladesh and even there we grow up watching so many american tv shows we went to like an english school so i guess even though we weren't growing up in a foreign country we were surrounded by a lot of western cultures and that's where i guess we got introduced to concepts such as mental health which a lot of people back home like what is that nobody even <laughs> nobody even knows what that is um but I guess one of the things, even growing up there, it was just certain things that I thought that I needed just because I know that my parents, they didn't come for, from such a wealthy background. So for them, survival is the main thing. And, you know, paying for me is their way of showing their love to me. And I completely understand all these sacrifices they made for me which is why you know every time I get angry which is very often I don't you know I never lose my respect for them I never lose my love for them but then there is that mm -hmm. I guess that concept of emotional support which I personally feel I haven't gotten much but that's also because I know mm -hmm. they probably mm -hmm. don't know how to translate you know that emotional support yes for me and just growing yes. up, I guess it was a hard thing to deal with. As when I was growing up, you know, going through middle school, being an angsty teenager, my way of dealing with that was just to be angry at them and, you know, always argue with them. But I feel like as I've grown up and now I live a more independent life, and I guess I can say I'm an adult at this moment, um, I think I, I try to be more patient with them and understand why they're reacting certain ways when I'm just trying to explain my point of view or when they don't want to listen. I try not to be angry with them, but I just can't help it. Like I still feel anger towards them. Like when, you know, they tell me, why are you acting like this? Why aren't you being that ideal child that I raised you to be? I did so much for you. And that just makes me angry but also guilty for feeling angry because i'm like okay that is true you yeah. brought me here yeah. but you know i also expect to be my own person and you won't let me do that so i guess that mm. feeling of mm. feeling anger towards them but also feeling guilty about being angry towards them because you know you said there's this whole fear behind them of coming to this new system where they know nothing and that makes complete sense but also how do i as an individual who don't you know who i don't know that fear but i also need to live my own life and yeah. take care of my own mental health how can i deal with that oh wow how much time have we got psycho <laughs> um what you have described, uh, you know, first of all, uh, you know, it, it takes courage to be able to share a story, regardless, however, you know, how many mm -hmm. times we say it, we relive it every time we say it. So, you know, for that, I acknowledge that. And I think the, uh, my hat, while I'm listening to you, is going to have a little bit more inform my own personal mm -hmm. um, uh, way as a woman, mm -hmm. uh, the way I had to, uh, you know, relate in what I'm hearing you, the listening I carry is like, I can relate to myself having mm -hmm. gone through those kind of conversation and, uh, you know, uh, rebelliousness and then kind of thing. And also I'm putting the mental health hat on from, uh, you know, when I'm hearing your words about, you know, suffering from mental health and being weighed down by this uh, feelings of guilt and shame and uh, mm -hmm. with the experience of this anger that you feel towards. Um, so, I think that definitely I would say in South Asian women, there is these are the common themes that are probably unique. Um, uh, you know, uniqueness doesn't mean that the, another di in a diverse culture will have a, you know, is different. So uniqueness is, uh, you know, embracing that particular, uh, you know, differences are there for a reason. Let's embrace the differences. So mm -hmm. South Asian women will have these unique struggles because of um, particularly women because of patriarchy because of gender, because of colonization. It's very important to also understand colonization within mm -hmm. this context. And also, uh, also 
this is a part I really am also curiously want exploring at this time is emotional expressions and and particularly around anger. So I would say what is unique about in the South Asian is are we as a society encouraged for women to be angry, particularly when you're South Asia? There are certain inherent kind of notions and beliefs that come about anger and anger responses. So often, South Asian women internalize anger and it holds in the internalized, become passive aggressive, become, you know, they start rebelling, but in a silent way, like, you know, mm-hmm. and you might notice, you know, in my probably grandparents, if I look at the mums in my generation, they've all been silent uh, uh, troopers because anger is never in allowed or, you know, shunned upon. There's a shame that comes with anger responses for South Asian women and women in general, yeah. but particularly within South Asia because patriarchy operates differently way so when you say about anger and the guilt i would encourage you to think about this voice is guilt coming from the voice of guilt is as a woman am i you know allowed do i not have to feel anger at all do i you know what expectations do you hold in yourself that you've letting yourself down your own eyes how did i become angry whereas i look at anger from three lenses and that again comes from a cultural and my own curiosity with neuroscience it's as biological physiological and psychological Mm -hmm. so you're talking to me anger from a psychological point of view feeling Mm -hmm. disheartened but that's shaped from a belief that is steeped in many other layers as i said of gender patriarch and colonization now if we step back and looked at anger from a physical sense so when you're talking to someone you physically feel energy build up and the exhaustion of having to bring something up physically is a toll. Mm-hmm. And so it has a physical and physiological uh, la pathway, a neural pathway of feeling the intense emotion, which your brain or the mind is labeling as anger, but it could be many other things. Okay. So to me is the relationship you have with anger I would advise anyone or listener to carry a curiosity of looking at your own beliefs, what's informing me, the way I look at anger, the way I show it and how I feel after I've shown it. And often I will say in South Asian, they feel guilty. I mean, that's again, it's coming from a sense of shame. Yes. As a society, women don't display anger because you're like a man, you're aggressive. And even in Western society, in corporate society, Uh women can't be aggressive if they should. Again, it's again, patriarchy deforms anger and expressions of anger. So the other thing I was thinking, how do you repair? I mean, how do you engage with the parents who have, again, uh, you know, are are expressing to you that, oh, where's my daughter? Where's that? Now, again, that grief and loss, and it's immediately puts us, the person like you and I can relate as a daughter is like, yes, of course I love you. Why do you have to say that? This has nothing to do with the other. Yes. And you want to say like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a very common experience because again, our parents do not understand love. They've never said, I love you. They have no way to, they've never been even felt that experience. Like this whole mm-hmm. mother's day, father's day has come only recently, but they yeah. have never. So to me, I had to learn like, um, okay, um, so a part of that, in, in you know, uh, uh, the sore points come is the way they express. Again, I, I'm fascinated with expression of emotions because mm-hmm. when I sit with parents like that and ask them with the daughter, like say if I met you and your parents and I would have asked your mom, did you mean to say that you don't love her because she's doing that? Then she would say, of course not. That's not what I mean. Because again, <laughs> oh, but... I, and then I'll ask Saika, Saika, did you assume your mom is going, is, uh, is, you know, saying she doesn't love you because you're not being the dude? And you might say yes. And uh-huh. so then it's like, oh, so obviously the love language is where it's, so she's saying, because I love her, I'm doing this. Whereas you might say, that's not how I feel love. So my then my work is like, okay, if you could tell your daughter in a loving way, the same thing, but in a loving way, could you find words to describe to her still, uh, you know, and that's the repair that comes, but it comes on also for you, mom, when you say that, I don't feel you're you're actually saying you you're putting, you Mm -hmm. know, are, are you saying you don't love me? And I had to name it, but it comes with a process. 
Yeah. So to me, if, the, if I'm working with someone like that, I invite the family in that relationship, in that conversation, because often it's the expression and the intention gets mismatched. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, especially the thing you said, um, because firstly, I think <laughs> it would be very, very difficult to convince my parents to come <laughs> and have like a family counseling session. So um, I guess firstly, let's, I guess, talk about more about the whole acceptance of anger you talked about. How does one accept anger and these feelings of guilt that come with anger are there anything you know we can do or we can certain things we can explore note down just you know some some tangible things that we can take from this podcast going forward um as a so to well the lens with which i view anger is is first of all it's just um the word it's a word that's telling Mm -hmm. you an experience So when I hear the word anger, it's telling me an experience within a certain context. So I don't assume that when I say, oh, how do you work with anger is you're not an angry person, but something has made you feel anger. Yeah, that's the first thing. So you look at, first of all, where what is it in this uh, context has brought this experience of anger in me Mm -hmm. and also look at anger, like I said, Is this voice of anger coming from a certain belief I have? I believe I deserve this, often comes. Or Mm -hmm. I believe I'm speaking from a true place. I believe I'm justified in what I said. Mm -hmm. I believe, so, so anger, you have to understand what this anger is standing for. What is this anger that you, that is giving the strong energy? Then you look at the expression of anger. You look at, ask yourself, okay, I feel, am I, do I feel okay feeling angry in this situation again? Mm -hmm. And if the answer comes yes, validate yourself. Then you ask, what is, is the voice of guilt coming because I felt anger? I shouldn't have this feeling, like it's a wrong feeling to have with this experience. Mm -hmm. Or, and if so, What's uh, what's an okay feeling to have? Yeah. Again, if you say I shouldn't feel angry, so what's an okay feeling then to have with mm-hmm. someone you talk? So again, what is then? Again, think about it because I don't know what's an okay feeling. If it, you know, if it is um, a feeling of acceptance or complacency, again, if that's what you want to feel, then you can think about how do I work towards it? What would help me go towards it? Yeah. So, or you can look at anger also expressions of anger it's very important for south asian women you need to be comfortable with the expression of anger often guilt comes when the anger again if the anger anger is an emotion it's a wave so it always comes as a wave and the mind comes later so when the emotion comes whatever your body nervous system is your natural nervous system might be wanting to lash out you might say mm-hmm. words. The natural instinct for someone is to go and eat food. That's, again, as an anger response to internalize and calm down. So you automatically, when people get angry, some people want to eat more. So again, the body starts to tell how this emotion is expressing. But mm-hmm. you feel bad after you've eaten. You feel bad after you've spoken. So your feeling bad is you're unaware how your body is releasing it. So if you really want to change maybe the way you don't want to eat, you know, that's not the way you want to express anger, Mm. then acknowledge how it feels in your body. Acknowledge the pattern because that is your, your honest body is telling you, I'm holding this energy for you this way. Mm -hmm. I'm releasing this energy for you this way. So if you are saying, I'm going to get angry, so allow, so I don't want you to stop yelling, but I would say, notice that maybe, you know, stop the phone conversation, give me a few minutes, yell in a pillow, take a few, because you're releasing it. You're not fixing Mm -hmm. the situation. You're releasing the anger Mm -hmm. and you're allowing it to respond. You don't have that shame response. You can still connect with with your mom or dad after because you're honoring your emotional release. And the same thing. So if you understand, and that's the hardest bit, 
most often emotion people automatically assume the expression and then judge themselves you're a bad person because you did it because the mind then kicks in later but they yeah. uh, they ignore the body's expression yeah. so that's why society plays a big role society plays a big role particularly for women there are a lot more i've seen a lot more women use food as a comfort to cope with anger and and again there's a guilt that stays there too so whether yeah. you internalize it whether you externalize it the guilt remains because society doesn't allow these expressions as authentic so to me when you say yes you're angry but then there's an expression of anger you're not comfortable with right. in the way it comes but i would say to you is express your anger in a safe way but then also engage about what brought you anger with the person so there's there's a, that's what i would say understand anger in three lenses wow that's that's brilliant because i've never given anger a personality like you kind of just did and i've never actually explored why i feel the guilt whether this is valid whether it's okay to be angry um i guess i just was never allowed to express anger without having consequences growing up so i think that would have helped actually hearing that and understanding yes it's an it's a valid emotion it's all good we'll we'll <laughs> we'll fix it we'll not fix it but we'll acknowledge it and accept it and yes, exactly. see how we are reacting to it and maybe makes i guess take certain actions to choose a way to express it that doesn't make us feel bad or guilty did i absolutely and there's a community responsibility yeah. around us also as women as sisters to sisters that you know there's a sense of us also in our attempt to support someone who's lashing out is like don't be angry or we might say that's mm -hmm. not an okay you know a thing to do as a woman or you know south asian women need to be poised <laughs> or there is you know uh, again we as sisters also again because we have never been yeah. taught we never been also understood emotions and think and also within the psychological lens emotion anger like that is only looked from one aspect so again that again, that's why people might go to anger management or you know try and fix anger mm -hmm. but they still feel oh let down another layer of guilt and shame what's wrong with me i went and did these tools and uh, you know strategies it's still not yeah. working because ang emotion to me from a cross cultural lens is multi layered and mm -hmm. you got to accept start with the biology biology of emotions there's enough and and then there come the physiology nervous system last is psychology the mm. psychology is the final but biology is what your nervous system has its own unique response to release the intensity of that emotion mm -hmm. the psychological one comes after yeah that's great and and that's oh, i wish really now people talk about is regulation yeah yeah for sure and i wish <laughs> i wish we had like 24 hours to talk about this because i'm pretty sure we could um but i don't i don't know well <laughs> i don't know if you would be able to talk to this um just because you you did mention that you know you'd probably have a conversation with the child and the parents to understand i guess how they express love and you know have a conversation around that and mediate that conversation so for i guess uh someone who can't you know go to therapy or even afford therapy and things like that um what cuz just for an example i do sometimes when i'm just really really i can't take it anymore and i just tell my mom everything and i sit her down and i'm like listen you did this it hurt me which is why i i just can't react the way you want me to i can't you know be as nice to you as you want me to right now because what you said hurt me it's made me feel like you know i don't matter and things like that and she when i say that she immediately she will be like that that's not my intention that's okay and then i feel good i'm like okay she she's meeting me halfway we're getting somewhere okay now we can have a beautiful mother daughter relationship and then the next day it's like she's forgotten everything and we probably have the same argument again and 
I know she her way of me showing love is like calling her up every day, having you know the same conversations every day. What what are you eating today? What's the weather like? Nothing really real. Whereas I do want a real proper relationship with her, and I don't want to lead this double life. Um, so I guess what do you have any strategies that we could use to talk to our parents to make it stick and to make them listen? Well, this is the challenge, I would say, um, for, you know, uh, this generation, including because we are discovering, we are blending two Mm -hmm. cultures in our mind. So we are learning Western education and uh, we are exposed to mental health. We're exposed to, you know, uh, media and understanding, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, deep, intimate conversations. We're exposed to a lot more resources, Mm -hmm. but we're also valuing that. We uh, in our generation, your, I mean, I'm um, a generation before you, my generation, your generation, we're valuing. We're valuing conversations to be centered around emotions. We're valuing emotional based conversations, which our parents' generation, grandparents, they never got exposed to. Mm-hmm. So they don't know the value. That's true. So, to, so if you looked at value currency, you yourself, you're like, you have, there's a market and you are in a market that you know the value. Your parents are never going to come to your shop and buy it because they don't see the value. <laughs> yes. If you think about it in that way, there's no marketing value. So for it's, so there is no buying and selling is not a, even a fair trade of emotions yes. here, right? Yes. So let's accept the gap that exists. So uh-huh. when you say, so that means then, what does that mean? So when I'm sitting in a conversation with my mom, and it, this is happening in my uh, mom mm-hmm. and parents, so I'm not uh, denying it's not untouched. So if you're having a conversation with your mom and she said repentant, and she would say, yes, I didn't mean to cause hurt. Because again, heart ways, it's not coming from that. But she's got learned habits. She has got only that conversation to prove to her as a mother, a mother always checks on her daughter. A mother always, so her belief is like, I'm a good mother if I did this. Mm -hmm. So she's centered around habits and patterns of conversation that's centered. So when you say she's remorseful, you're hearing thinking she's going to change her expressions when she doesn't even know what she, how she can change. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're already carrying her remorse and jumping to a hope and expectation that next day she would have learned. She would have been able to adapt, you know, completely learn a new language and dictionary to talk with you. So, mm-hmm. so you have jumped, I guess, in that hope as a lovely daughter wanting this mother-daughter connection into uh, seeing the evidence of it. So yeah. for me is these most often the repair, the, the coaching comes from us to them. Right. And that's the hardest bit. So when you're listeners and to you, you need to have allies. How do we co- talk to our parents in a way? How do we coach them? So yes. how do we, you know, okay, so if I wanted to have a mother-daughter talk, you know, Ma, did you ever have any conversation with your mother? No, I didn't. Can I try something with you? Playfulness works because yes. in a way you become the teacher to help her get into, but mm-hmm. you're doing it with the hope of her learning, not yeah. that she's a bad mother. Are you open to learning? All right. So, or you might introduce it in a way that say tells I'm doing it because I want to feel as actually, you know, you know, closer, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, is there a way or you might, you know, again, I've sometimes used, sometimes the world is really good because sometimes a mother, somebody sends something on YouTube and then she says, oh, I watched this on YouTube because (laughs) there was an Indian channel that talked about emotions and she would be like, oh, Okay, do you want to talk about it? So I would say use technology because most of the time they do want to connect, but they don't know how. So right. I think the challenge is, is more us having like, you know, what is the expectation we carry? What's realistic? So to me is, is yes, you want a closeness, but it's kind of like, again, giving, if, uh, you know, asking a child to be an adult. Can yes. they? They can't. So in a way, our, ch- our parents are like children in the emotional market. Mm. They have no skills. But what they do have is unconditional love because they won't give up. Because they will still. And that's the difference, I guess. The way of showing unconditional love is mm-hmm. never, ever disconnecting the phone with you. So even if you tell her, yell at her, she'll still call you the next day with the yeah. same questions. Even though because <laughs> it's her way of saying, 
oh, Saika, she, you know, Saika, this is my Saika. So there's some <laughs> innocence in that and even my mother. Yeah. So to keep doing it because they're raised with that, this is what my job is as a mother to check in with my daughter. So there's an implicit commitment to that belief they carry. Mm-hmm. And I guess be, with that, is it, should we be keeping that hopeful expectation that one day they'll come about? Absolutely. Or or do we, I guess, I have seen how do change. we learn until that happens? Because every time I hope and then it doesn't work and then I need a few days to kind of retract and be like, ah, okay, that sucked. Let, <laughs> that won't work again. And then after maybe okay. three months, I want to bring it up again. And it's it's like a cycle. So how do I, as a person, learn to live with and accept these small increases in, you know, improvement I see in the relationship? Or how do I deal with kind of having these expectations that are not being met? Or should I even not have these hopeful expectations? I guess that's what I'm trying to understand. Um, so I think the hope we carry and the hope you carry is there's something there that's not Mm. meeting your need and the hope is, and being let down tells me, and I do not know, and this is what happens. If we constantly bring something, we are intentionally or unconsciously looking for a Mm. particular sign Mm. of change. And I do not know what that sign is, but you, and that would be the first thing. What sign of change do you want to see in the, in your parent conversation? To me, it might be very different for everybody. So it requires a bit more reflection for you in understanding mm-hmm. of what is it that would be markers for, you know, for example, would she pick up the phone and ask a different question to you? Or if you're saying something, would she be asking a curious question to you? Would that give you a sign? Yeah. Most often the change happens is so little that mm-hmm. we often look for a big change and it often feels let down because that big change, like I said, they are learning baby skills. So yeah. most often I find that if for us to understand how we want, whether things will be different, is our commitment to how much do we invest in it because knowing there is a difference in where they are at and where you're at. Hmm. So in the perseverance you do, you got to understand is how, you know, so what is, and that again, it's something that comes with your own self-reflection in hmm. a way to understand this change that I want is that really achievable knowing where they are at right. and where they can be or they cannot be? So they could be, but again, what would be the markers of the change? So if you are, sometimes the world is so different, they can't even relate to, mm-hmm. do you, then you, you sometimes you want to ask, like I would, there are times when I sometimes ask, Ma, do you sometimes feel that you really know what my day looks like? Or sometimes you're puzzled? Yeah. I don't know. You just tell me, right? <laughs> so the, it's kind of like, you know, there are certain, so to me, I have had to learn to be open a little bit for them yes. to know, do you really get, you know, sometimes when I say these things, does that make sense to you? Or you just like roll your eyes because I sound, <laughs> so again, I'm trying to get a little bit off. Are they really listening or they're just like, you know, switch the ears off. Then I choose them. And so right. to me, clearly, so that's what I mean. There's a lot of, you know, nuances in some ways of the hope we carry and how much we, when, every, when someone says, I've been let down, that means I'm curious as to what is the hope you carry of a change and what that would mean for you or look like and feel for you. Yeah, that's so interesting because um, I don't know if you know much about the startup world, but it's kind of like we have this huge idea of a business, how it's going to end up, all the money it's going to make. But then we break that big thing into smaller actions and then even like smaller actions. But I never thought of it that way when I was approaching my relationship with my family. So that for me that is amazing. This is probably like the most I've gotten out of talking to a psychologist. <laughs> and I for one I for one see some hope. <laughs> I'm glad. But it is yeah. like break it down, make simplify it. That's, Absolutely. That thank Absolutely. you so much for being so honest and actually listening to my questions and answering them <laughs> so well. Pleasure. Um I think we should stop it there because it's getting a bit 
bit long, and you're gonna come back. Pratiba's gonna come back with us, so don't worry about that. Um, she's gonna come back to answer some more questions. So please, if you want to ask any particular questions and to her about you know your relationship with your families or raising children and things like that, please just let us know. And yeah, any final words from you? Um, look, uh, you. Ha- I'm glad I can be a part of your podcast to be able to have a voice in this space to talk about cross cultural. Um, but also, you know, part of me is also having a selfish notion <laughs> to support the community, empower within the knowledge I carry and the wisdom. So, you know, I. Uh, so that's the other thing too. I, you know, that the, the, the therapy services I offer is as you know. Uh, I hope it's also supportive. So. Um, I'm happy to share with you my website link or something for people to have an inquiry again so they know my biases from personal and professional lens and I'll be keen to um, you know hear from others uh, from hearing this what other curiosity or questions or um, maybe they did disagree with me which is great I love disagreement (laughs) so that tells me I missed something out so I welcome all um, because it's about it's a conversation that only opens up Mm. So if anyone wants to talk to you, disagree with you, find you, where can they where where can they do that? Well, as I as I'm not born in the social media <laughs> world, so it is through a website and contact page so behind. Oh my god. So it's pratibatherapy.com. So it's so in that there's a contact page. So you can yell, scream, or acknowledge in any way in that contact page. I will welcome it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I will be teaching you some social media skills as we go. Uh, so don't worry about that. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. And I will see you on the next episode. Look forward to it. Take care, Saika. Okay, <laughs> so that was a lot to take in. It's quite a big topic and honestly, we could have gone on for hours. I had to make an executive decision at one point to call it off. But thank you so much for tuning into the first episode of The South Asian Mind. If you'd like to read through the condensed notes made from today's episode, please feel free to check it out at thesouthasianmind.com. Show your support and follow us on Instagram at The South Asian Mind and join our little safe space on our Facebook group, The South Asian Mind Community. And remember, you are free to catch up with us anytime. I hope to see you again soon.